welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bass. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. Happy New Year. We're not there yet, but we're almost there. No, yeah, it's yeah, it's almost the the new year. I, I had a very Merry Christmas. Yeah. Happy New Decade. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Yes. As long as we're not being pedantic. Once <laughs> Well, and here's here's uh, something that my mom pointed out that I guess I didn't need pointed out to me, but I wasn't thinking about it. Uh, once we hit 2020, it will be 20 years since I graduated high school, which is crazy to think about. Uh, I'm not somebody who, who's like, Oh my gosh, like you want to feel old. It's not so much that it's just like, it just, I, it feels not recent, but I have such a strong memory of it it just it hasn't really faded that much for me yeah i feel like you and i talk about things like this a lot where we don't want to be the one of you old right. guys but there are certain there's certain things about being in your late 30s yeah where you like i don't know you still feel you still feel young in a lot of ways yeah you realize that you're not i guess is that that that's that's what this age is, is and uh, i do think that for my for myself, being a movie person, being a pop culture person, as I am, um, and as you are, just the nature of what we do, um, I feel like I'm more prone to that want to feel old thing because when you're, I mean, basically my entire life, uh, the way I've related to other people has been primarily through shared culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, and, and for the most part, the people that I've been talking to are within five years older, or younger than me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now that I'm 38 and well, sorry, I'm almost 38, but, uh, so now that I'm as old as I am, and now there are people that are 10 plus years younger than I am that are still officially adults. It's like, okay, now there are completely separate cultures, uh, reference points, points, like different types of certainly movies, uh, and TV shows and video games, video game systems, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's, and I don't look down on what they grew up with. I don't look down on what I grew up with. Um, I just recognize how different, uh, it is. And they're not going to know anything about eek the cat. And they won't. Gonna, you're not going to know anything about Kim Possible. Boy, that's uh, and I bet. I bet you know what? I'll bet Kim Possible is even an older reference uh, <laughs> for some, for like my student, my high school students. Oh right. Um, but yeah, but they're not so they're no. That's true. That's true. Um, anyway, okay. So uh, yes, Christmas. So, yeah, we just had Christmas, yeah. and uh, my wife. Um, uh, doesn't buy me movies for Christmas, which is by design. Like, yeah, I don't want them. Yeah. I don't want any new, any new, uh, uh, movies, but you do get movies for Christmas. I do. Um, something that Jen has, uh, expressed in the past is that, uh, and one of the reasons why I have my Riddler collection, which is getting well out of control at this point, I need to add now a third shelf and it's like, okay, now, now what am I going to, what am I doing with my life? Um, we have to do a two, a second part of our Patreon episode. Of, I know. Uh, yeah, that's true. Riddlers. Um, so Riddler eraser. It is. Yes. Is that, is from Batman new? forever. That is new. Yes. Cool. Uh, and then I got a couple others that are still, uh, under the tree. I need okay. to, to put them up, but one of them is another, uh, Frank Gorshin, uh, bust anyway. Um, <laughs> 
Can you think of a more ridiculous phrase than another <laughs> Frank Gorshin bust? <laughs> um, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, um, I actually, I, I certainly don't buy movies for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when it comes to like Christmas and like my birthday, whenever somebody asks what I want, it's like, well, there's not really that many things that I want. Uh, and then I, and then usually what happens is because, Jen and my in-laws and all that, like they want to buy me something. So it's like, all right. So I, I look at my movie collection, my existing movie collection. And I think what DVDs do I want to that's a great have it, idea. have be Blu-ray, you know? And so that is an upgrade. It also technically takes up less space, a little Just bit less little space. Bit less yes. Space. <laughs> uh, or in the case of, for example, Batman the Animated Series, which I just got uh, for Christmas. Oh. Um, well, I had all four volumes of the DVDs, and each one is diff- is is separate, and so that one saves a lot of room, as you can see, and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. on my shelf. So I do appreciate that. Yeah, but I then that you so you don't separate your Blu-rays and DVDs, but you do separate movies and television. Yes. Whereas my collection is the opposite. I do. I have a Blu-rays, all my Blu-rays, oh, okay. and all my DVDs, but. TV is just mixed in there alphabetically with, with the movies. Yeah. It's, uh, and then I think we also separate out like our, uh, like family films. Um, Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, but that's more for Jen, uh, cause she's often in the mood for family films and she doesn't want to go hunting through our uh, collection to find them. Um, so there's one I accidentally stumbled upon and a most wanted man. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. She grabs that. She's like, this is probably for kids. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, and then I will say, okay, I'm not one to say, to mention like first world problems, uh, very right, often. Sure. Um, but as I was debating a certain thing, I realized like this is maybe one of the dumbest conflicts I've ever had <laughs> within myself. So I got, the Lord of the Rings trilogy on Blu-ray. Now I have it on DVD. Here's the thing. I adore the DVD extended edition packaging. Okay. Love it. All right. And I don't want to give that up. (laughs) And so I may wind up transferring the Blu-ray discs into the DVD packaging. I know it, it bothers me too. Um, but uh, yeah, and so also the Blu-rays are a total of fifteen discs, and there are only twelve slots in the old packaging. And so Jen was like, "Well, you could just put the last one like in its own sleeve and just tuck it in there." And I was like, "I could do that, but now we're really getting into some like aesthetic problems for me." Yeah, but it is again like I think you just got to let go of the DVD. One sec. Uh, okay. I didn't know we were going to do a whole... Well, the, this is for... We don't have the video set up. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the listener Admiral can't see Patreons. this. But, I mean, the thing that I like about... If you want again, to join the Patreon, though, patreon.com slash Battleship Pretension. That's true. But uh, you won't see video of this. But as you can see, like, the, this is, like, some really cool... Uh, it's backwards, but... Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Um, but the, the extended DVD edition of Lord of the Rings, like... The packaging, they look like books, like the spines look like books. And then like the the Blu-ray, it still is is some unique packaging, but it just doesn't look quite the same and it doesn't look that interesting. And I'd rather have this be on my shelf than that. Like huh. if I'm gonna embrace physical media as like a fun thing, 
packaging is a big part of it. And I prefer this packaging to this. I wish that there was a way. I wish they did they did the Blu-rays like this, wow. but they want it to all be one thing. So this is the this is the debate that I have yeah, going on inside me. I'm and not it's, on your side on this. I'm because I don't. I don't think I'm, I'm on my side. Like I just, <laughs> I don't care about packaging that much. Mm. I know, uh, I know a lot of people do. I mean, you go to like uh, home home video. What is it? Home theater forum, whatever the website you should never go to. Uh, <laughs> it's just a, a message board of uh, really obnoxious people. For oh, okay. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of talk about like cover art and so like that. Yeah. I never, never really cared. I appreciate when it, I appreciate it when it's done well. And like one of the one of the movies that uh, that I got was the Nice Criterion Do the Right Thing Blu-ray. Oh, which I have. and uh, and you have it. And like that's some nice packaging. It's got some heft to it. Yeah. And uh, it feels weighty. And so I do appreciate that aspect of it. And so this is so some of the movies that I I got the the Criterion uh, Manchurian Candidate. Oh, cool. I got the Warner Archive Blu-ray of The Thin Man. Very cool. Um, we got Apollo 13 on Blu-ray. And so pretty much... forever. Oh, it, it holds up. I'll say that. And especially the visually, it, it holds up. But um, but yeah, so that's that's uh, what I got. I don't, I don't know if I got anything like actually n- any movies new for, for Christmas. I think it's all just blu-ray conversions um which is fine with me and i also got a couple of uh, board games um that are movie related um one is called horrified uh which i've heard nothing but good things about and it's essentially a board game that in- incorporates like the old universal monsters um and then i also got the jaws board game so uh very excited about that i got um i did get a. uh, uh Speaking of Jaws, I got my, my wife did give me a, a coffee mug that has just a bunch of like movie geek stuff on it that oh, it doesn't neat. like say what it is. Mm. Like it's for people who recognize like the uh, license plate from Jaws or the nice. idol from Raiders of the Lost Ark or, or, or all sorts of uh, things. That's like that. fun. Yeah, it's a cool coffee mug. So yeah. All anyway, right. um, Merry Christmas. Yeah. So uh, I want to tell you real quick, Tyler, about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day of our lives. Uh, Today I was listening to uh, Ariana Grande's new live album. Um, And it just uh, mostly made me think about how I don't really like Ariana Grande's new stuff. And I like the older stuff and I'd rather listen to the original recordings of the older stuff than the new live version. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, I don't know where I am with the culture on Ariana Grande. If I'm, if other people have soured on her or I, I haven't really followed along, but, uh, this is another instance where I've probably heard an Ariana Grande song I'm and sure I don't know it. Uh, I have sure nothing. Have. This is not me like taking some kind of stand being like, I'm not into this. I just don't, I just don't follow it. I'm sure I would probably enjoy what I've you heard. Listen to break free, which is the one break you free? may maybe most likely to have heard. Okay. I won't, uh, will I sing it? You won't know it based on me singing. No, I won't. This is the part where I say I don't want you. I'm stronger than I've been before. This is the part when I break free. Because I can't do this anymore. No, keep going. No, I think that's, I, I think, that's like the whole chorus. I think I, no, just well, then say the verses. <laughs> I think I'm almost there. Uh, I think you, I, no, it sounds familiar. I would say that's the one you're most likely to have heard. It was okay. the, the first big one that I remember hearing um, at the time. But uh, I don't know. Anyway, um, I do appreciate 
genuinely how open you are with singing on mic <laughs> like by your own admission you can't sing i'm, I'm very bad at it it's, yeah. it's i've i've often said if i were granted three wishes by a genie one of them would be to be able to, to have a good singing voice that would mm. be one of my three wishes that's it what would the what would the other two be probably just like something with money and something with like uh health sure money health and being able to sing sure yeah I would want half my head to be an orange. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'd probably have to actually uh, excise the singing one and use my third wish to free the genie. That's the way you do it, right? Whatever. You know, it depends on his attitude. <laughs> or her attitude. Oh, pardon me, yes. Did you ever see that X-Files episode? No, I didn't. Je souhaite. Hmm. I, it's I wish in French. It's oh, a, okay. about a French like gypsy genie mm. lady. It's a great episode. Okay. Um, I haven't seen enough X-Files in general. Well, that's one of the uh, Vince Gilligan episodes. Oh, okay. Um, one that he directed as well. Uh, uh, really good, really good episode. Really okay. Darkly funny. Like I, one of the uh, best X-Files episodes. I forgot that we uh, are in the middle of an ad. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so anyways, Ariana Grande, uh, I'm, you know, her, as much as I'm annoyed by her uh, cultural appropriation and shit, her black scent sounded great on my <laughs> tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Uh, those are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes. We are going to get into it. Shall yeah, we get into we it? Yeah, we are. Notably yeah. earlier than usual. Yeah, because of the early Oscars this year, which kind of like, we've made, you know, we've been doing this show for almost 13 years mm-hmm. now. And we've kind of tied our end of the year coverage to the Oscar air date. And that's always been fine until they moved it up to February fucking 9th. Yeah. Um, so everything's shifted back. Uh, and so we are kicking off our end of the year coverage earlier. Usually we would kick it off with Scott's top 10, which yeah. we'll do next week, right? Yes. Next week. Yes. Uh, Scott will be on to do his top 10 of the year. Um, so we are kicking off where we usually kick off, uh, except for the first year. I think the f- not the first year, but there was one year where we did the through the cracks before the individual achievements. Yes. And I think we both came, after that one year came to the decision that the nature of the through the cracks things means giving ourselves more time to catch yes. up on stuff makes that episode yeah. worth doing later. Individual so we- achievement. You can kind of always do. Um, <laughs> right. At, at least I try to, uh, the ones that I pick are ones that, I try to avoid stuff that is getting major awards That's buzz. Exactly what um, I do here. So this is kind of a blend of like this yeah. is our favorite performances and other uh, uh, stuff of the of the year, but um, not the ones that you're already seeing rack up uh, uh, mm-hmm. nominations. So um, 
I think you should start and generally as I remember you kind of dictate the order yeah uh, we just we bounce around, around a little okay. bit yeah okay so I uh, let's let's get started okay we're gonna start with supporting actress okay I guarantee we don't have the same pick here because I don't think you've seen mine. okay and I don't think you've seen mine either actually uh, so mine is divine joy randolph from dolomite is my name i have not seen it yet uh so yeah she plays um oh shoot now i don't remember lady reed or something like that now i don't recall the name of the of the character I can tell you. um you want. yes you do that so dolomite is my name is a movie that is uh very good extremely entertaining uh maybe a little safer than it should be um it definitely adheres to the f- formula that you would find with Ed Wood, which is not surprising. It's the same okay. screenwriters. Oh. Um, same yeah, Lady, Lady Reed. Okay. Same as uh, Man on the Moon. Uh, they also wrote that. And so th- just the idea of kind of these okay. misfits on the f- misfits on the fringes of, of uh, show business. Um, that's what the, the screenwriters excel at. But as often happens, um, less so I'd say with uh, man on the moon, but definitely with, with Ed Wood. And now with, with, uh, Dolomite is my name. You have your lead, but the thing about misfits is that they, they attract other misfits, uh, and you get some really, really solid supporting performances because when you have somebody who's sort of leading the charge, they, I mean, there, there's actually some, some really notable lines in Ed Wood, um, that apply to this, which is someone says, you know, Eddie's the only person that doesn't judge anybody. And then he goes, yes, if I did, I wouldn't have any friends. Uh, (laughs) and, and that definitely is how Dolomite is my name, uh, shakes out because you have Rudy Ray Moore trying to do something that nobody's ever done. And that, and that means bringing in people that have been pushed to the fringes. And one of them is lady Reed, who is, uh, I'm uh, along with being, you know, an African-American woman, but also like a little bit lar- uh, on the, on the plus side. Um, and divine, I want to make sure Randolph, not Rudolph. Okay. Uh, divine joy Randolph plays the character with a lot of heart. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say she's the heart of the film, but she's a big part of it um, because she's someone that like life, not just in the concept of show business, but just life in general has not been particularly kind to. And so now she's in this position where she's playing lead roles in, uh, in these ridiculous movies. But uh, she's never the object of fun. Uh, The character, like the way other characters treat her and then the way the movie treats her, it treats her as like, no, this is somebody because of the way Hollywood approaches, not just race, but also gender, uh, body image, that sort of thing. Like this is the type of person that would never be allowed near a camera, much less a lead role. And if they were, it's to be an object of fun. Mm. And divine joy Randolph plays the character as extremely capable of doing the things she needs to do and talented and fun and charismatic, but also with a real, a real gratitude. It's, it's interesting because she's not a pitiable figure. If she only played the character as, as simply grateful, then it suggests that she's a charity case. 
She's not. It's a situation where she just needed somebody to give her a chance and she knows she can do this, but she also knows that no one would have let her. Hmm. And so it's this weird combination of like, she is very strong, very proud. And I don't mean prideful. She's proud of what she's able to do. Um, and there's a moment that maybe hangs too much, you know, hangs too much of a lantern on it. But she says to Rudy, the character says to Rudy Ray more like, I've never seen somebody that looks like me up on the screen. And that has multi, that has a lot of meaning to it. Uh, not just from a racial standpoint, but again, from the way she looks as well. And it's, you know, while I think the rest of the film, like I said, feels kind of safe, um, You feel like you know what you're getting, but then when she shows up, like the way that she plays that character, she doesn't play her as a type, nor does she overplay the themes of the film or what the character represents. She plays her as a full-fledged character who knows what she's capable of and also knows that no one has been able to see that to the point where maybe she starts to lose it a little bit, lose, lose focus on it a little bit. Um, And it really is just a, a marvelous performance. I really love it. It's, Eddie Murphy does a great job and there's a lot of other good stuff in the movie, but I really, f- I, I wish that like critics in the Academy and stuff were paying a little bit more attention to her because it's a really great performance. Um, real quick. Cause I, cause I looked her up to look up the character's name and also mm-hmm. saw that she's in this. Have you seen that Hulu is doing a high fidelity series? Oh, I didn't know. But with Zoe Kravitz in the lead role. Okay, and to me, because I've never liked High Fidelity, but right. I have often felt I, I do feel like that part of the reason I don't like it is the uh, I, I do think there's a specific male entitlement to that character, and so sure. I wonder if are they going to address that by making it a woman of color instead of a, a, a white male, or is it going is it are they not realizing what's actually in that story that that his I feel like his maleness and maybe to some extent his whiteness. Um, is a part of that character in not flattering ways. I, I think you tend to, cause you're the only person I know that doesn't care for the movie. Um, and so as a result, I think that, uh, you, I I get what you're saying and I think I might even agree with you, but I, I, as a result, since people just view the film positively, I don't think they're going to address it at all. Okay. All right. I'm uh, sorry. I don't mean to shoot you down. No, I that's just, okay. Yeah. But, you know. uh, everyone rewatch High Fidelity and realize that I'm right. It's not, it's mostly obnoxious, that movie. Uh, <laughs> I think, well, you know what? To me, I feel like if you view the character as 100% sympathetic or empathetic, then I think, yeah, it's like, no, you need to think more about it. Like he is a deeply flawed character and I don't think that we're meant to be on okay. his side. Maybe, maybe I was, maybe that's the, that I was not, mature sophisticated enough to realize the movie wasn't on his side when I saw it when I was 17 or yeah. 18 or whatever. It's from his pers- 2000? 2000. Yeah. 17, 18. Like it's from his perspective certainly, yeah. but I don't think it's always, and I think it, it wants him to mature as a person, but I think in order to do that and it reckon, it recognizes that he is immature. Right. Um, okay. uh, that I might just, be one, uh, to revisit it perhaps in the new year. Yeah. Well, that's, um, I always come up with these columns that I never have time to do. Sure. I spend so much time watching or like writing movie reviews and actually yeah. my job, we'll talk about this uh, in an upcoming Patreon episode actually, but they're like one of the columns I've wanted to do is, uh, revisiting movies that I didn't like that everyone else seems to like that are mm. at least 10 years old. That was, uh, uh, 
the, the column. Maybe maybe I'll do that someday. Um, but let's move on to my supporting actors. We can't take all the, right, these. Right. And for mine, I'm picking something that I'm taking the word supporting very literally in the sense that um, often I feel like when, when we talk about the awards for supporting actress or, or actor for supporting roles, we think about like we look basically looking for the same things we look for in lead roles, but just with less screen time. Mm-hmm. Whereas sometimes the part of a supporting role is just to support the movie. The character doesn't have to have some great arc or have to have that much depth. They have to be crucial to the movie and that that is, you know, that's a, that's a kind of acting that's important that I don't think I thought about a lot for a long time. I was only thinking about like, well, how deep is the character? You know, what's the, sure. what's the psychology of, of the character? That's all important. But sometimes, sometimes the role of an actor is to show up and do the thing the movie needs. Yeah. Especially and, if it's a supporting yeah. role. And so I am going with Penelope Cruz in Pain and Glory. Okay. Which is a very small role. Uh, you haven't, and this is when you haven't, I haven't seen, seen it yet. I think you'd like it by the way. Um, uh, based on what I've heard. Yes, I think I will. It, yeah. It, it's a, it, it's a very small role. We do get some, uh, of her character as it, as it goes on. But so much of the movie is about, cause he plays Antonio Banderas or she plays Antonio Banderas's mother in flashbacks. Hmm. So, so much of the, the, the purpose of this character is to be the sort of, mother that Antonio Banderas' character remembers, which is not going to be all that deep a role. You know, you just have to, it's, you have to represent certain things about childhood and womanhood and adulthood. Um, and, and, and just, and just be there and be there for the, for the character and, and, and for the movie. And so there's not a lot of screen time here, but it's, it's, it's indelible. It's in its own, in its own way. It does ask a lot of Penelope Cruz and there's a reason you cast someone, uh, as, uh, as, uh, memorable, just not just, I don't just mean that Penelope Cruz is beautiful. There's a reason she's a famous actress. She's got a lot of great, uh, screen charisma and, and presence, you mm-hmm. know, and, and she's definitely the kind of actress who can make a big impression with a, with a small amount of screen time. And she does so, uh, wonderfully in pain and glory. All right. Next up, we're going to go with uh, screenplay. Uh, now, let me. I didn't actually. Oh, I feel bad. I didn't actually write down the names of the screenwriters. Um, oh, that was uh, not very thoughtful. I know. As I like oh. <laughs> Google the names of the screenwriters. Okay, so this is Brian. Uh, the writers are Brian Gunn and Mark Gunn, and the movie is Brightburn. Um, so this is not a, a perfect film by any stretch and, and there are better screenplays this year. Um, but those screenplays are getting a lot of, a lot of press. So I wanted to talk about one that, that didn't, um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of anything that takes a genre and, and turns it on its head specifically if you go all the way with it, because, there are plenty of movies that will, you know, for comedic purposes or, or whatever, they'll just explore a certain concept, a well, you know, well-developed concept, uh, within film or TV, and they'll do it just a little bit. And you feel like, okay, you just, you, you, can you give me an example of, <sighs> well, like, okay. I am, as you know, a big fan of Cabin in the Woods, but I recently rewatched it, and it's one of those things where it's like, 
like you're trying, they either they're trying to distance themselves from like the horror aspect and just make a straight up comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, or they're not going quite deep enough. Like for example, in that one, there's the moment where a character, uh, Chris Hemsworth's ca- character is saying like, we shouldn't, we need to stay together. We shouldn't split up. And then they simply blow like gas in his right. face yeah. and he goes, Oh no, we should split up. And it's like, well, what, wait, there's just gas that makes somebody think a very specific thing. Like that's too easy. Like you, you should explore why this character suddenly feels yeah. that this is the right thing to do, whatever it is. And in, in some, in some instances they do it. And in some instances they don't. And so they just don't, there's a lot I love about that movie from a thematic standpoint, but from a, from a high concept standpoint, I feel like they don't fully commit to it. Whereas, um, Brightburn, they literally just say, what if Superman was not good? And it's like, okay, all right, let's play with that. What would that look like? Um, Pure unadulterated uh, terror is what that would look like. Like, think of everything that Superman is and why we're happy he's good. Uh, Because he bullets can't hurt him, and he has laser eyes, and he can fly, and he he has all these horrible abilities. uh, Sorry, all these wonderful abilities, but they're only wonderful because they're on our side. And so what if he were bad? And so... You know, it's one thing to say, "Hey, yeah, let's 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 take a superhero and turn it on in, uh, a superhero movie and turn it on its head." And as a result, it doesn't stay a superhero movie. It, it would have been so easy for them to just have it be kind of quirky and kind of funny, and plenty of other uh, movies have done that, um, and and TV shows and cartoons, and that's fine. But they were they wanted to commit. They're like, let's go as far down the line with this as we can. And they realize we are now in a different genre. Uh, we start like we have all the superhero tropes, but we're going to do something very different. And it's that commitment, that full commitment where now like we are seeing terrible things happen to characters that we like, um, that I'm like, I love this. I found it so refreshing, uh, because I do feel like a lot of movies hold back a little bit because they still want to retain what's, uh, what's, you know, what's fun about that. Um, in the same way, uh, the movie walk hard from like 10 plus years ago, uh, is trying to be a parody of the musical biopic and the songs are fun and it's a, it's a perfectly fine movie, but it's like, no, be a parody of this and don't just play into it because by the end there aren't really any jokes and it just plays the emotional power of this genre. It's like, no, if you're going to look into it, then do that and look at and, and play up the emotional manipulation that we, that viewers experience when watching these kind of movies. And so I feel like this is one that has the, it's got the, what is the power of its conviction? Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. got the power of its conviction, and I really, really appreciated that. Um, or is it the confidence of its conviction? There's a, there is a, yeah. it's the something of its conviction, yeah. and I don't remember what it is. Uh, all right, so my, you, we don't differentiate, but you did an original screenplay. Yeah. I'm doing an adapted screenplay. Uh, the writers are Sarfraz Manzor, Gurinder Chada, and Paul Mayada Burgess, and the movie is Blinded by the Light. Okay. Which is uh, that first name I mentioned, Sarfraz Manzor. It's based on his memoir. Uh, mm-hmm. He co adapted uh, his own his own memoir. Um, and, 
You've seen it. The courage of the com- of his courage. convictions. That's it. Okay. Sorry. Um, so yeah, you've seen. I uh, have. Seen Bonobo, I'll I be think. talking about it in a minute. Oh, okay. You and I, um, I, I think, talked about had some very the same pretty much the same takeaway uh, of a specific thing, which is how good the movie is at capturing what music or really just a pop popular culture, but music often mm-hmm. in, in particular, what it means to teenage ears, especially mm-hmm. those who when uh, it's a teenager who is who doesn't fit in which is really all teenagers we don't realize that at the yeah. time but all teenagers feel like they don't fit in um that's a that's a part of it and that's a part of why the music that we hear and grow to love at that age will never leave us mm-hmm. you know it's it's always going to be uh, uh a crucial part of our our uh, identities and i think um blind by the light does such a good job of um uh, it's simultaneously making us feel like that teenager discovering this very important music for the first time while at the, all, at the same time having the perspective of adulthood and looking back on it with a certain bit of uh, wistfulness or irony or nostalgia it, it, and it, all of that is is blended together in a way that I think would probably speak equally to uh, a 13 year old audience or a 43 year old yeah. <laughs> audience or even even older Um if the audience is willing to give themselves over to the emotionalism of the film, uh, I think that they would see a lot of themselves. And it's like, in this case, it's music, but it could be anything, any kind of passion. I mean, in my review of it, I wind up talking about Orson Welles for the first paragraph because anybody who, it doesn't have to be what they do for a living or anything like that, but anybody who sees something, it could be watching sports. It could be collecting stamps, whatever it is the minute that it hits them the first time, like, Oh, I understand like this. I understand this more than I understand anything else. And other people don't seem to understand this as much as I do. And yeah, the, the screenplay in the movie in general, but the screenplay really captures that. And so I feel like there's a universe universality to, to the film. If audiences are willing to let themselves admit that. Yeah. All right. I'm Let's, sorry. I, I, I totally uh, cut you off. I apologize. No, you didn't. Okay. I, I think, um, yeah, it's, it's a great movie. People it, watch yeah. It. Uh, right, what's next? Okay. So next we'll talk about lead actor. Now, officially, okay, so this is like a three-way tie for me, but I'm going to leave out Brad Pitt for Ad Astra uh, I'm, because it's Brad Pitt and, you know, he doesn't need any help from me, um, <laughs> though he is marvelous in that film. And then on the most recent movie journal, I already talked about Paul Walter Hauser. Okay. Um, I'm worried we might have the same one here, then. Okay. I doubt it. Oh, okay. I highly doubt it. I like Jojo Rabbit more than oh. you. I don't like it as much as a lot of people, but I will go to bat for Roman Griffin Davis all day long. Okay. Like, it is... I, I have such tremendous respect for child actors because we've seen bad performances and we've seen good performances. Um, but something like Roman Griffin Davis, he reminds me of, um, Oh my gosh. Now the kid's name is escaping me from room. Jacob Tremblay. Jacob Tremblay. Um, because as opposed to, no offense to Haley Joel Osment, as opposed to Haley Joel Osment in uh, The Sixth Sense, where he does a wonderful job, but he also doesn't have to play a lot of different things. Whereas 
there's a genuine arc uh, in in Roman Griffin Davis's performance in Jojo Rabbit, and he has to be. You know, any other film would be like, oh, he's Hitler youth. So let's just have him be completely robotic. It's like, no, he still has the youthful, uh, the exuberance of being a kid, but just in a horribly uh, twisted way. Um, And so the idea of him being enthusiastic in favor of this awful thing uh, is is novel a little and it's a little bit on the part of the of Taika Waititi it's a little bit risky um, because we have an idea of what it would look like to be a brainwashed kid and it's especially in an in Nazi Germany and it's like and it doesn't look like this but he's still a kid and so the way he approaches the world um just it feels right to me and he's very charismatic very charming and then as he starts to as he starts to change he still changes so this might be a, a screenplay issue as well but uh a function of the screenplay as well but uh he changes in a way that still is decidedly him and you know just because he now realizes the error of his ways that doesn't mean that he suddenly is wise beyond his years he's still a kid he's a kid the whole time and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i love i just love the way he 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 plays it uh i'm always with him and even when he's saying espousing terrible things i'm i'm on his side to the extent that i want him to be better um right and also just in general to to hold your own with Scarlett Johansson and Sam Rockwell and this and these other uh, characters, Thomas and McKenzie, like it's really something. And I mean, that movie, it's named after him, but it would have been real easy for him to just be kind of this observer. Um, but no, like when I think of the movie, I think of him. I think of Jojo and I really I'm I'm really eager to see what the kid does next he doesn't he doesn't have a great deal of experience before this i'm i'm excited to see what comes next uh, a couple of things i'm gonna have to uh take this one off my celebrity sightings list because i haven't mentioned this to you because we were going to do a patreon thing mm-hmm. but i was at uh, my wife and i went to the fox searchlight holiday party because mm-hmm. we're uh, big with vips or whatever yeah and roman griffin davis was there how's he doing having a good time and then at one point laid down on a bench and fell asleep in the middle of the party. <laughs> it was like so cute. <laughs> you kidding me? Yeah. Um, and that's, and, uh, and that's the thing is I know it sounds weird, but like that's something a kid would do and yeah. his ability to bring that to, to a to the character, yeah. because I think a lot of, uh, of young actors and I guess again, this nothing is nothing exists completely on its own in filmmaking. So this is a function of Taika Waititi and knowing how to, how to direct him. But it, I think a lot of, young actors try to play adults. I think they try to, to play the, okay. the grown, a grown up quality of the character instead of just be kids. Um, and I think he clearly, if he's willing to lay down on a bench and fall asleep, which is just the cutest thing I <laughs> yeah. can think of. Uh, like that is someone who's just totally, seem obviously totally comfortable yeah. with being a child. Also at that party, Archie Yates was there who plays Yorkie. Oh, and he's great in mm-hmm. the movie, um, but apparently he's going to be starring in the Home Alone reboot. I heard that I, with like American Parents too. Um, I think I'm sure he could do. I, I don't. I'm sure he could do an accent. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried no. about just taking the wrong lessons from what's so funny about Yorkie. <laughs> sure, and like, oh, let's just amp up the precociousness or whatever, yeah, and the cuteness of it. 
Um, but yeah, Yorkie's a great character. He is a great character. Yeah. All right. Uh, what well, well, uh, lead actor? Yeah. Speaking of Nazis. Oh, good. Um, uh, my yeah, my character also butts up against some some Nazis, and I, I picked August Deal from mm-hmm. A Hidden Life, uh, which is a cha- another challenging in a very different way from the Penelope Cruz role is challenging because we talked about you know performances, lead performances, especially being dynamic and having mm-hmm. arcs. And on the surface, the whole point of the movie is that Augustio like makes a decision and sticks to it. Yeah, uh, I, I say Augustio because I forget his name. Franz, something like Ye- Jägerstatter or something like that. No, uh, I don't remember. Oh, okay. Um, anyway, so he, yeah, so he on one, yeah, he makes a decision and and, and sticks to it. And so it's a nearly three hour movie of him uh, sticking by his his guns. Um, but of course, that's I, I even uh, what I just said. What is it? Franz Jägerstatter. Okay. Uh, even what I just said isn't true because with the uh, the runtime being what it is, it's actually pretty far into the movie before we see him actually sort of make this decision, like refuse to. Uh, we yeah. see him. We meet him as a younger uh, man when he first meets uh, uh, his wife by Valerie Pachner. Pachner. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there, he's a little bit more for a guy who would stick by his have the courage of his convictions there we go um and not just converge his convictions but his religious moral beliefs mm. we initially meet him as sort of like not a bad dude but like he's young he's enjoying some brewskis with the yeah. boys you know that sort of thing <laughs> you know uh macking on ladies uh yeah. and yeah, this is not a this is not a character who has been looking to be noble, right? Uh, you know, for the for, yeah, he doesn't have an arc in the traditional sense. But when you realize that for the first third of the film, his whole goal is to just avoid, like he's not looking to make a big stand. Yeah, but then he also does. I mean, he he because he was he did uh, go to war one before. Yeah. So there's a whole section where he goes at least not to war to basic training or something yeah. before he gets conscripted and is told he has to make a yeah. an oath of loyalty to to Hitler. So obviously you see him grow uh through that. Um and then yeah, about maybe a halfway a little less than halfway through he says no. Mm-hmm. Um and but what happened I'm talking uh, I feel like I do this every year with the individual achievements uh, uh, episode where sometimes I end up talking more about the screenplay than the character. But what what he has to do is it's not a simple thing for him to stick by that conviction in that, that decision. In fact, he has multiple scenes where he's kind of looking for not looking for a way out, but mm. asking like he asks a couple of members of the clergy, you know what they think. And he's, I feel like if someone could, he's open to the argument that he should go ahead and do this, but no one can make a strong enough case for it. And so, and so he doesn't. And so for the second half of the movie, he's, he's dealing with the consequences of that decision and learning more and more what he's, what he's losing. Yeah. Uh, and of course we're learning it a lot through the, I mean, uh, I've talked about, I've, I didn't pick Valerie Packner for my lead actress simply because I didn't want to double up on one movie. Sure. I tend not to do, but, um, she's also amazing and I would consider her a, a co-lead, especially in the second, like you said, two thirds of the movie. Once he's in prison, the movie pretty much splits time mm-hmm. between him and, and her and her sister and the, their daughters, uh, on, on the farm. And so we're also learning what he's, what he's losing. Um, anyway, yeah, it's a, a great performance from, uh, yeah. uh, a very good actor that I, um, 
new from Inglorious Bastards, of course. Um, and uh, I feel like something else, but I hope we see more of him. He's, yeah. he's got a great uh, screen presence. Um, I feel like he's like, I feel like he's like his presence isn't actually like an Adam Driver, but I feel like he's an Adam Driver type in that he's not conventionally attractive. But right. I'll bet a lot of women find him attractive sure. because he has a sure uh, a, a great charisma. But um, I'm trying. To, so I, I know I got to throw back to you, but I like. I know I've seen him in something besides a glorious bastard. No. Just, oh, right. Duh. Another lead role. I just didn't like the movie. He played Karl Marx in the young Karl Marx a couple oh, of years okay. ago, which is not, a, I didn't like it. Uh, all right. I'll jump to, um, our wild card. Okay. All right. Now, uh, this will be the first mention of this movie. Okay. Uh, so I am doubling up in, in one instance. Um, so for art direction or just production design, I went with knives out. Um, I did not actually, once again, write down the name of the production designer, which I probably should have. Um, but you can look that up while I'm, uh, while oh, I'm, okay. while I'm talking about it. Uh, yeah, it's, I was, I was talking about this in the, um, in the movie journal. Cause I just saw knives out. Um, it's a whodunit and it takes place in a, in a big mansion. And we've seen this so many times we've seen it in Gosford park. We recently, somewhat recently saw it in your next, David uh, crank is da- the production. David design. crank. Yeah. Oh, that's delightful. And, um, uh, David Schlesinger is the set decorator. Yeah. It, and then, I mean, even movies like clue, like we've seen it, in in who done uh, and in parodies of who done uh, it's such a common thing that you wonder how could this feel new how could this feel fresh how could it feel lived in um, and one of the great things about about the production design of Knives Out is that this isn't merely a mansion. It's the mansion of somebody that writes mystery stories. So of course he himself is going to the Christopher Plummer character. He is going to create a world around himself that reflects the stories he creates if for no other reason than inspiration. And so whether it be these weird statues and this, and this, uh, odd, uh, art piece with just all these knives pointing inward yeah. some of them fake some of them real um it's or it's the idea of a false wall and uh this strange attic situation and the idea that this this house just has so many mysteries of its own and that there's always another there's always another part of the house um and then also, I guess this is more a function of sound design, but just the way the stairs creak are exactly the way creaky stairs sound. I know that sounds that sounds odd, um, but uh, like when I, whenever uh, Jen and I go back to her parents for uh, uh, Christmas or or any kind of holiday, um, the they live in an old house, and the stairs are the noisiest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> and you can and you know anywhere in the house when someone is going up or down the stairs. Oh. And so what? I'm just as a um, as a and I'm, I've cut back considerably, but as a smoker, that gives me anxiety. Oh, I'm I sure. wanted to go. If I was staying in someone else's house, I wanted to go sneak out for a cigarette in the middle of the night. I couldn't. Yeah. Oh my! I no. could not do that. Uh, and so the, I, I hate, I would never say like the house is another character. I hate when people say that shit, but, um, but it definitely, it's so, 
unique to this story that this story told this way with these characters couldn't take place anywhere else. It needs to be a place that char- that the characters are familiar with and it needs to be specific to them, but also be the essence of this kind of house. It's so much fun. I wanted to step in and walk around in it and just, I wanted to sit and read a book in it. Uh, but at the same time, you know that if you spend any length of time in this house, you'll probably get murdered uh, because that's <laughs> the type of house it is. Um, and that, and the type it was meant to be by the person that, uh, that lives in it. Uh, and I just, uh, again, one of the things that I really love about knives out is that it finds just these very well, this very well trod territory and it finds a way to, to make it feel fresh. And the art, the, the production design is a big part of that. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned because my, I didn't. One of the things I considered for the wild card uh, was also production design, but for Ready or Not, uh, mostly because oh. I just wanted to. I keep finding ways, both on here and then in like the uh, Hollywood Critics Association, Online Film Critics Association, which are the two critic groups I belong to. Yeah, I haven't. We've talked about on the podcast that LA Online Film Critics Society is now called the Hollywood Critics Association. Mm-hmm. So HCA and OFCS. I've. I've tried to represent for Ready or Not because that's sure. the kind of movie that's, I mean, it's going to be forgotten at awards time. It doesn't seem yeah. like an awards movie, but it's one of the best times I had at the movies all year. Mm-hmm. And so I did consider doing production design for Ready or Not, but I couldn't bring myself to do it because I am a longtime advocate of there being a stunt category at the sure. Oscars. And in a year with a John Wick movie, I can't of miss my chance to make that case. So I'm going with stunts. Uh, for for John Wick, the uh, for John Wick three, uh, John Wick Chapter three, Parabellum is there the official uh, full title of the movie. Um, just, I mean, the movie is nonstop crazy stunts, but just the the horse chase slash motorcycle chase alone is 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 so astounding, and you, it's the kind of thing that you can't. Uh, I would say in most in most cases often we talk about like editing or cinematography like sometimes the best editing and cinematography is the ones you don't notice yeah I don't think that's really true with stuff <laughs> like with that's stunts, true the more that you're going like ooh that looked like it hurt yeah. the more like uh, the, the better the stunts the stunts are um, uh, on the other hand yeah bad stunts you also notice in a bad way when someone yeah. when people, like fall down without getting hit or uh, which is more about stunt choreography than stunts but it'll all be in the same in the same thing um uh, yeah, I, I don't know what else to say about about John Wick except that they keep uh, they they keep raising the bar uh, on themselves with each movie in terms of um, uh, level of action. But what they they don't uh, cheat is the thing. They keep coming up with greater grander action set pieces, and yet they're not like do, they're probably doing a little bit more CGI enhancement from mm-hmm. the first because the the first John Wick was like a really small budget for that kind of movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure they're doing more CGI enhancement when, when the, when the guy gets kicked in the face by the horse, that's probably not real. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then when he gets kicked in the face again by the horse is also probably not real. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah, as, as showcases for, uh, stunt choreography and stunt performance, uh, the John Wick movies kind of, at least an American film can't be, beat and I, I haven't i'm not enough of a worldwide action aficionado to to know i know that motor, the motorcycle chase that i referenced was um 
I guess depending on charitable how charitable you want to be, you could say it was either lifted from an, or an homage to a South Korean movie called Villainess from uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so yeah, I, I can't speak to those movies because I uh, don't keep up with uh, international action that well. But uh, John Wick, as far as American action movies, can't be beaten. All right. So next we'll go with um, supporting actor. Um, so my selection. And I apologize, I'm probably not going to do justice to the name, is Kalvinder Gear um, from Blinded by the Light, who plays oh, um, our main character's father. Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, uh, so Blinded by the Light, one of the things that I don't like about it is just how it approaches certain characters um, as just completely two-dimensional. Um, but the character of the of the father um, is one that is that they actually take the time to develop. And as we were taught, as we we're talking about with the screenplay, a lot of the, a lot of the beats uh, are things we've seen before. And that includes the traditional father who doesn't necessarily like what his son is doing. But in this case, it's not so much that he is opposed to what, to his son's passion. It's that it's like, no, you're not paying attention to the world around you. This is a world that doesn't care about us and maybe is actively opposed to us. Uh, you know, we're living in the UK. Uh, we are not official or at least I'm not from here and there are people that are against us. And so we got to keep our heads low, just keep working because survival is what it's all about. And there's no time for art in a world of, of survival. And this is also a guy who is out of work, uh, but still puts on a suit, still, uh, has his wife like cut and dye his hair so that he can look, uh, look youthful and vibrant and relevant. Um, because he needs people to see him as, capable of working because that is how he defines himself and it's how he takes care of his family. And so, uh, so this is a character who's, who's having a bit of a, of a crisis, not a midlife crisis, but an identity crisis because who is he if he can't work? And so there's a real sadness, but a real pride to him as well. And I think the, the actor does a great job of imbuing the character not with pure humanity, which is to say that you just feel bad for him the whole time because he is uh, pretty rough towards his son and we have to be angry at him while also kind of understanding that he's having a, a rough go of it as well. And so um, we see a sadness, a frustration, not just with his circumstances, but probably with himself as well. Um, a desire to connect with his family, but also feeling like, well, if I connect with them, then I'm not going to be the patriarch anymore. Uh, and I'll just be like their buddy. And so it's just a guy who is so tethered to tradition, tethered to uh, a, a rather rigid way of living and defining himself. Uh, who's now being faced with someone who wants to go completely the opposite of that. And, and on top of everything else, the character needs to be kind of amusing at times. And so for the actor to be able to, to, uh, juggle all of that and make it seem like a genuine character who at times is the antagonist and at times is almost a co-lead as far as an arc goes. And, uh, I, I just think that, uh, he really did a, a great job. Um, I want to make sure I, I get his name again. Uh, oh, you had it. Yeah. Col- Colvender gear. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I had it pulled up here. But... 
And so like when I think of the movie, I think of our lead, obviously, but I maybe just as much think of this character as well. And I think it's a a really marvelous performance. All right. Supporting actor. uh, I know if you haven't seen the movie, it might sound like a joke, but uh, I mean it when I say uh, Kevin Garnett as Kevin Garnett. (laughs) Sure. Uncut uncut gems. Yeah. uh, It's so great because there are like. There are a couple of other people who play themselves. The weekend is one. The other one I won't uh, uh, ruin for people. Mm-hmm. But they're mostly just showing up to be themselves for a scene. Yeah. Kevin Garnett is an actual character in the movie. Yeah. And he's meant to play multiple different uh, emotions, emotions that have an impact on the on the on Adam Sandler's character and on the plot in in general. You know, the first time he sees the opal that becomes the that's the sort of the the. Is, the, is it a MacGuffin? Would you consider the Opal a MacGuffin? Uh, I don't really know. May, uh, I don't know if I'd say MacGuffin. Maybe, uh, though. Like, but it's a, it's a, there's a lot it's swirling around it. Yeah, yeah uh, Literally, there's the <laughs> within the, the special effects, there's things yeah. swirling around inside it. Uh, his reaction to that um, is is crucial and was actually played uh, as a character moment. But um, the, the scene I'll point to is that I think when you get a non-actor to play themselves or whatever. Yeah. You're mostly just saying, uh, say these lines as yourself. Yeah. But there's a part in, it's the final scene that he and Adam Sandler have together mm-hmm. where he just has to react, which is, that's the yeah. deeper level of acting is not talking, but just the reacting yeah. reaction. And when, cause the, the movie takes place in May of 2012 during the, uh, Eastern conference semifinals of the NBA playoffs, uh, when the Boston Celtics, which is the team that Kevin Garnett is on is, playing the Philadelphia 76ers and Adam Sandler is talking to him about the game that night against the 76ers and he has one of my favorite lines in the movie is like he's talking about the Vegas odds makers that you know are betting against Kevin Garnett and he's like doesn't that make you want to step on Elton Brand's fucking neck <laughs> which is one of the players from the 76ers yeah. and it's a great line from Adam Sandler uh, but Kevin Garnett he doesn't say anything in response to it you just see yeah. uh, him reacting like uh at the same time, a being kind of convinced by what I'm saying, they're saying, and also realizing this person is crazier than he thought he was. Yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a great like mix of emotions in that, in that one moment. And I really, I honestly hope that Kevin Garnett, I hope he becomes a, I hope, I hope people cast him in things uh, yeah. now because he's, he's really good uh, in this movie. Yeah. Whenever somebody, whenever a non-actor plays themselves, you're just like, just, just try not to screw this up. Uh, but the fact that you're as emotionally invested in his scenes, um, and it's, and it's a true supporting performance as well, where he is driving parts of the action, but a lot of it is reactive to what Mm -hmm. Sandler is doing. But his, in that, within that scene, like his, the stuff he says that prompts Adam Sandler to say that is also really effective right. from a character standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, we're going to, we'll yeah, end with, we'll, we'll, we have two left. We'll end with director. Right. So we'll do lead actress. Uh, and so here is my double dip. I talked about knives out before I'm going to talk about, uh, Ana de Armas, uh, for knives out. Um, and I believe a, few, uh, a couple years ago, I talked about her in this situation for supporting actress oh. for blade runner. Um, and, it's this is such a it's such a fun performance and you really don't think it's going to be because this is a a character who is decent and humble and all of these things in a movie full of people that are not and 
you think that she's going to be like, oh, okay, she's going to be our boring lead and we're going to see things through her eyes and that's going to be the end of it. Uh, but no, and I'll, I'm going to say this with as much with as much an eye towards spoilers as I can or not spoiling it. Um, she's also very reactive um, and she has to look at just the constant developments of, uh, of the story. And I like that there's just an element of humorous exasperation uh-huh. as if to say like, and I think there's a couple times where it's like, come on, like just one thing after another. Um, and there's, there's physical comedy in what she's doing. Like when, a, when she has to very quickly throw something, uh, in the background. Oh. Um, I love that. Uh, but then, so she has to be very amusing because there's, there's an element of farce to, uh, to her story. Um, but also she does have to be the emotional core of the film. She does have to convey genuine decency, um, and capability, uh, both in her job and her ability to adapt to the current circumstances. And so again, when I think of my favorite performances, it's usually about balancing disparate elements within a character. And, and I think she does such a great job with that, that like, it's it's worth noting that when we have all these other characters that are often more they're just kind of archetypes and archetypes can be a lot of fun to watch especially in a, in a in this type of film and the fact that i'm just as interested if not more interested not just in her story but in what she's doing and how she's going to react to it like that is that's worth noting when it comes to like a performance speaking of reacting and i was because i was talking with kevin garnett and you just used the word um I think the sort of, as a non-actor, the baseline of like, while well, acting is hard is it'd be hard to memorize all those lines. <laughs> Once you sure. get past that, yeah. and you're like, there's a part in the movie, and I, yeah, we can't give away any spoilers. I know. Out, but there's a big reveal in which not only does she have to be surprised, but everyone looks at her. When yeah. I watch that, and I th- if I try to imagine myself as an actor in that moment, mm-hmm. I honestly get anxiety. Like, it seems yeah. like that, that would be the hardest thing in the world to do. Uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, she does it great. All right, so uh, I because I said I didn't want to double up on on a hidden life. I didn't go with Ellery Pachner or Pachner here. I don't know how she pronounces it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I went with a movie that I haven't seen in almost a year because uh, I saw it at Sundance last year, and that's um, uh, the Souvenir. Okay, and the lead performance is Honor Swittenburn. Okay, uh, playing jo- a sort of it's, there's a semi autobiographical element to mm-hmm. the Souvenir, and so uh, to the Sorry. Honor Swinton, who's Tilda Swinton's daughter, Tilda Swinton also is in the movie as her mother. Um, but uh, Honor Swintonburn plays essentially young Joanna Hogg, mm-hmm. um, and the the movie is uh, on its. You haven't seen it yet, right? No, you'd you'd love it. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie is on its on its surface a sort of tragic love story about a a, a woman who's in love with a man who's uh, no good for her or himself. Um. On underneath that, it's a story about a a, a a well-meaning woman kind of realizing how little she knows about the world that she very much wants to be a positive impact on this world. Um, and it, there's a sort of uh, the tragedy of the movie is not Tom Burke's uh, storyline, you know, uh, drug addiction storyline mm-hmm. as her uh, her paramour, um, but it's really her 
realizing that going from this motive, I'm going to go out there and change things. Cause she, she wants to be a filmmaker like Joanna mm-hmm. and she wants to make films about the type of people that films don't get made about these sort of working class, um, uh, people in small town, uh, uh, England. And the story of the movie is her realizing that she doesn't know shit about the world <laughs> yeah. and she has to like, she's going to have to learn some things, some hard lessons in the world before she can, uh, you, you know, work, you work on yourself before you can uh, work on other type of things. She, uh, uh, so there's a, there, there's a, you know, when I talk about character, I like, with, like with Kevin Garnett and his reaction, the idea of there being multiple things going on at once, mm-hmm. um, uh, with a character. So there's the idea that we are, we are very much on her side, but on the other hand, we are sometimes like, uh, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, the way you're talking about these people is patronizing. Um, but then also feeling sympathetic for her when there's things that are going on, uh, in in the world around her and with her 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 boyfriend um that everyone but her knows because she's so naive mm. um and and she takes all of these things and makes one uh, very uh solid and and um uh sympathetic and in many ways lovable character <coughs> all right all right so last but not least certainly um is uh director and so I chose uh, Mariel Heller for A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood precisely because for the same reason that I've been talking about Knives Out and, and Blinded by the Light is that you know this is a this is a film that we've seen before or at least it, we would we think we've seen before um, well sorry hang on we've definitely seen it before and it would have been very easy for her to make a movie like that but she uh, she subverts that in a way that I think makes perfect sense. So, first off, yeah, this I was is reading in uh, Entertainment Weekly that Tom Hanks apparently passed on this movie twice until Mariel Heller was attached to it. That was what sold him on it. I could see that um, so, because when I heard about it, I was just like, "Oh, I don't know." And then when I heard she was directing, I was like, "Okay, yeah." One of two things is going to happen: either it's like, okay, we enjoyed, can you ever forgive me? But we're going to need you to adapt to this formula for this. Cause like, you know, it's one thing to tell this story about this kind of rough person, but we're talking about Mr. Rogers now played by Tom Hanks. So we need you to, uh, to do what we want. So that was the first thing that could have happened. Or it's let's take this formula that we've seen before and, put a a really interesting spin on it. And so first off the fact that Mr. Rogers is not the lead, which is a screenwriting choice. And I think it it works really well. And she seems to have taken her directorial choices from that. And it's like, well, if he's not the lead, that means we don't have to put the emphasis on explaining him. We can keep him kind of mysterious uh, and elusive, which I think he is trying to be, but also, since it's all about the way he impacts this character, well, we are, we've been this character. So we're going to, we're going to go kind of abstract with it. And we're going to infuse the spirit of Mr. Rogers into this movie to such an extent that when we get, she, we get like ideas that could be seen as cutesy, which is we get establishing shots there that are, done in like model form like we get from Mr. Rogers neighborhood um 
we get sequences where uh, they're like fantasy sequences where we're watching an episode of Mr. Rogers uh, where he is about to tell us the story we're going to hear. We get dream sequences. We get a moment where he actually breaks the fourth wall and looks right at us. And none of that feels wrong because this is more than just a biopic, whether it be of Mr. Rogers or this other character. It's more than that. It is trying to get to the essence of a of a, a real person rather than simply and in my opinion in a very boring way uh just trying to show us something that we already know it's trying to make us feel something that we've already felt um and if that means undercutting the realism then so be it and i really appreciate that she just took those kinds of artistic risks because they could have gone wrong. It could have been way too cheesy or way too quirky or whatever it is. But she manages to find just, again, just the right balance uh, between those so that it becomes a film that feels different than it than it could have. It could have felt very familiar and it didn't. And that's a directorial uh, achievement. Uh, all right. We were talking earlier or was that on the movie journal about uh, getting older? That was earlier this episode, I think. Okay. Yeah. We, <laughs> Who knows? I mean, we always record the movie during the episode back to back, but this time it was really, like, I didn't even get out of the chair. Like, right. We, we yeah. really just like turned around. So I don't remember. Um, but uh, I like to think that I can still change. I try to still change and mm-hmm. grow. Uh, and I, one thing I've been thinking about over the past couple of years or so is that for so long, and I still am, someone who I consider myself an auteurist. I think of the director as the mm-hmm. author of the film, but for so long I interpreted that as the director imposing themselves mm-hmm. on the film. And I've sort of started to realize more. Um, and weirdly it's come from, even though we, the new wave group or the people we kind of get the auteur theory from, mm-hmm. it's come from watching more new wave movies and realizing a lot of times just staying out of the way yeah is a directorial choice and that's yeah. why tourism can be anything the yeah. auteur chooses for right. it to be and so that's why i'm choosing a documentary oh, okay director in fact best directors plural because the movie is called Honeyland, and the directors are tamara katevska and lubomir stefanov and uh this is a, a documentary in which um uh they go out to remote uh turkey i think um where there's this this woman, this woman who is in her own right pretty much elderly, mm-hmm. but also takes care of her own mother, and they live alone in this farm. And the way that she makes money is that she keeps bees and harvests uh, honey, and something that she and her family have been doing for a long, long time. And she has a has it down. Um, and I and just I, I, we've talked about documentaries before, like the King of Kong or something where just like someone decides to make a documentary and then an amazing story just falls into their lap. And that's kind of what happened here in that another family moved into the farm next door. Uh, and we're not only raising animals, they started raising animals, but then they were like, Oh, this woman keeps bees and she makes money. Let's start keeping bees too. And they end up, doing it wrong and kind of because the bees don't recognize which farm they're on yeah, yeah. kind of fucking up the whole habitat for bees for, for both of them in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. It's a lot of tension, um, but between this, this woman and this, and this other, uh, other family. And I really, uh, really commend, uh, Kuteska and Stefanov for, um, for not trying to steer the narrative too much for just yeah. realizing we've got something great here. We're not going to put our thumb on the scale in any way. We're yeah. just going to like uh, uh, let this uh, let this unfold. And um, 
as does, such a, does the because obviously this other family has come along and messed things up does the and it seems weird to talk about this with documentaries but they've done it before like do they portray this other family as like the antagonist no that's what's okay. so great about it yeah. is that they're, they're they really are just letting things uh, unfold and it they could have said okay what they could have done is said, okay, well now we have a story about X. It's mm-hmm. either about the greed of this young family or it's about the, uh, sort of economic impulses that, uh, force this young struggling family mm-hmm. to make, uh, decisions that are unwise long-term for the, the colonies, or it could be just about the, 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 the woman is, as a, you know, uh, solo fighter, you know, yeah. um, standing up for herself. Like they don't, they never say, okay, we're making a movie about X now. Yeah. They just really, st- and so it becomes a much grander and deeper thing, um, through their, uh, unwillingness to impose narrative on, uh, what's a pretty good story. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, right now, uh, I've got two documentaries currently in my top 10 hmm. uh, of the year, which is more than usual for me. Yeah. Um, we'll see how that shakes out once I catch up on, on some other stuff before we do our final episodes, uh, wrapping up 2019. But, uh, yeah, that's my best director pick and that's the whole, the whole thing, right? That's the whole shebang. David. The whole shebang. Um, the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, yeah. Uh, the whole courage of your convictions. <laughs> so, all right. Uh, yeah. And so listeners feel free in the comments to, uh, leave your individual, uh, achievements that really stuck out. They don't have to necessarily be in these categories. They could be, it could be like a score you really love or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, feel free to, uh, to contribute to the conversation. And uh, you can find us at battleshipprotection.com where you can find reviews of most of the movies we talked about uh, today. In some cases, more than one. Um, we have three hit reviews of A Hidden Life. Yeah, that's true. Because, uh, well, I did TIFF, Scott did AFI, and you did Theatrical. Yeah. Um, and in The Lighthouse, we had three because Luis did Can, I did TIFF, and Dave did Theatrical. Yeah. Uh, although The Lighthouse didn't show up today. It was definitely in contention for a lot of uh things for me the lighthouse yeah. um, i still haven't seen it so um, i i you'll love imagine it. i'll love it yeah um but it was mostly just like uh, willem, willem dafoe was already getting a lot of uh mm-hmm. recognition so i didn't want to uh i wanted to go with kevin garnett instead sure <laughs> um so uh, you can find reviews at com. uh you can email us at david at com or tyler at com. you can follow me on twitter at Davy pretension. Um, you can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler pretension. Anything else to plug this week? Yeah. Uh, more than one lesson. Um, as of the, the posting of this episode, uh, there is an episode available, uh, about uncut gems. It was a couple days late, uh, cause of the holidays. Uh, but yeah, that should be available at more than one lesson.com. And of course, uh, join the Patreon. Uh, we've got uh, some holiday. Uh, we did a Christmas mailbag this, mm-hmm. this past week. Uh, this upcoming week, we've got uh, uh, we're looking at the award season so far, and specifically yeah. our uh, little picks for our fantasy award season. We're going to be talking in general about uh, the award season and what's uh, who's who's up, who's training up, who's training down, yeah. stuff like that. Uh, that's at patreoncom pretension. In general, subscribe, rate, review. That helps us uh, yeah. everywhere. And uh, thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Happy New Year. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.